I recently changed my mind about Zoom poetry readings. When quarantine started, I started getting a lot of email invitations to Zoom poetry readings or Google Meet poetry readings. Uh, you know, some for presses, some for magazines, some for individuals. Often these were replacement readings of one kind or another. And my first thought was, this is a terrible idea. You know, just staring at a computer screen in my kitchen while some little box speaks poetry to me in a crumbly digitized voice from a thousand miles away. I just, what, where's the joy in that? Where's the human connection in that? And then I thought about actual poetry readings, sitting in a wobbly plastic chair in a room that's either stifling or over air conditioned, just staring longingly at the, the last little pale purple circlet of box wine left in your plastic cup while some former grad school acquaintance lilts some incoherent metaphor about his sex life at you from a semi-functional microphone. I thought, God, you know, when I'm at a real poetry reading, the only thing I actually want is to get full personal, social, cosmic credit for attending without actually having to attend. And it hit me that that's what a Zoom poetry reading is. That we can just sign on, congratulate each other, turn off our cameras, and go back to bed. And now that I've solved this problem for all of us, I think it's time to start the fucking show. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Three Rickets, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. That name might be a mistake. don't mean just to bag on poetry readings or on poets, though I will probably continue to do a lot of both. Uh, I love poetry, and I've been to God knows how many poetry readings, and I've given a good number of poetry readings, uh, for which I apologize, in part, or for some of them at least, because I've been to some good ones too, and I think I've given a couple good ones. But um, if we're going to talk about poetry readings, then... There's one thing that's really unavoidable. Before I realized that other people had a word for it, I called it poetry voice. It turns out that the more you know, popular received term is poet voice, which always feels a little stilted to me. So throughout this segment, I'm, I'm undoubtedly going to toggle back and forth between the two of those, but you already know what the fuck I'm talking about. The way that poets read 
when they stop the patter and they start the poetry. Good poem or not, good poet or not, it's a it's a bizarre convention, but it's one we're going to talk about a lot. <laughs> I have a, uh, a, a staggering amount of material actually to go through, so I'm going to try to move quickly. Uh, let's just jump to um, this piece that appeared in City Arts uh, in 2014 by uh, Rich Smith um, called Stop Using Poet Voice. Uh, so he does provide, I think, a, a very apt uh, description of, of poet voice or poetry voice for any of you who might be wondering what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Here's Rich Smith. If you've ever been to a poetry reading, the following scene will be familiar. After being introduced, a poet steps on stage and engages the audience with some light social speech. Maybe they talk about their forthcoming book, what they plan to read, how wonderfully warm it is for autumn here, how surprisingly cool for summer, how nice the people of this village, and how prodigious the public works projects. During this banter, the poet usually, sorry, during this banter, the poet uses a slightly performative but mostly natural voice. It's the voice they'd use to introduce you to their grandmother. Then they read the title of their first poem and launch into the first line. And now, but now their voice is different. It's as if, so, it's as if at some point between the last breath of banter and the first breath of poem, a fairy has twinkled by and dumped onto the poet's tongue a bag of magical dust, which for some reason forces the poet to adopt a precious lilting cadence to end every other line on a down note and to introduce pauses within sentences where pauses need not go. Maybe the poet is the great Louise Gluck or the U.S. Poet Laureate, Natasha Trethewey. Maybe the poet is a close friend. Whoever it is, that person has just slipped into poet voice, ruining everybody's evening and their own poetry, because now the, the audience has to spend a lot of intellectual and emotional energy trying to understand the words of the poem through a thick cloud of oratorical perfume. All right, so that's Rich Smith in City Arts in 2014. Um, I apologize, I realize I'm... Uh, uh, already enacting my own description uh, in order to keep the air conditioning from turning on I've uh, had to uh, adjust the thermostat so I'm now sweating my ass off in here and unzipping and shifting in my leather chair and causing all sorts of creaks and thuds uh, so apologies I'll try to uh, limit that so I think Rich Smith does a really good job of evoking the experience of poetry voice particularly that abrupt shift um, between you know the, the the poet's normal or semi-normal speaking voice and uh, his uh, po poem declaiming voice, he goes on it to um, batter Gregory Orr at some length while also praising him as a poet uh, in a description of a, what sounds like a, a very specific <laughs> evening that Rich Smith suffered through. Uh, it. Well, I don't need to. I won't. I won't add to his description because it's already clear. But uh, this is something I got. Um, I got obsessed with. Probably closer to twenty. Oh God, two thousand six or seven. Um, when I was uh, starting uh, grad school, uh, I it, you know it really clicked into place, and I became obsessed with poetry voice, as I called it, and and then uh, became a kind of a Savonarola, um, trying to purge it 
from myself, from my you know, girlfriend's readings, from my friend's readings. I became uh, sort of a zealot and I continued on um, this way uh, for at least several more years, um, uh, you know, haranguing my poor wife about uh, eliminating it from her readings. Um, I, I, I hesitate, but I, I fear that um, uh, that may not have, that, that may have been at least a small factor in her decision to uh, leave poetry behind, um, for which I apologize because I know she was uh, beloved as a poet. Uh, but it, you know, it's, it was pretty ubiquitous. It, it just, it, it's, it's a sort of odd spell um, that, uh, that really did make poetry readings sort of insufferable. And, you know, and still does to some extent, I haven't been to a poetry reading in ages, partly because uh, of this virus and partly because I, I have small children. Uh, but, I, you know, I gather it's still, you know, at least somewhat in effect. Um, so Rich Smith goes on from having um, given this description to uh, uh, beating up Gregory Orr to then make a recommendation that I think is just perfectly wrongheaded. He says, here's Rich Smith again. I suggest poets look to the theater for direction. If you are a poet writing poems that have a speaker, no matter how reliable or fragmentary, do what actors do. You are on stage, aren't you? Pick a character that makes sense with the poems. Square your shoulders to the audience and project to the back of the room. You're not trying to talk down a bear. You're trying to be the bear. Deciding on reading styles that suit or productively play with the content of your poems will add meaningful layers to the poems, which will make for a richer performance experience for everyone involved. Uh, he goes on to say you can, you can also just give no readings. Um, but, uh, you know, setting aside just that utter incoherence of his advice here, um, I was a drama major. I'd spent a lot, spent a lot of fucking time in theater and good God, the last thing you want to do to people who have no experience with theater is to say, go try to be an actor. It's like saying, you know, your, your poetry reading voice is a little uh, wobbly. Why don't you try to play the ukulele while you just recite your poem? Never played the ukulele? You know, think about it. You're smart. Give it a try. It's terrible advice. And uh, and if you think that a stilted, uh, artificial, off-putting, uh, difficult to follow performance style is not native to amateur theater, then you're... You're out of your mind. So I know I think this is terrible advice, though understandable perhaps. I, I want to jump ahead now to um, another piece with a similar but distinct message. Um, she even makes a point of calling out Rich Smith to say, aha, I, I don't agree with you. This is from um, uh, Lisa Marie Basile or Basile or Basile. I'm not sure um, how her last name is pronounced. looks Italian, Basile. Uh, in um, uh, Huffington Post in 2017. So this is, this is uh, Bazile. So what makes the poet voice such a problem? I'm, I'm jumping to, toward the end of her article, I should say. Um, she, she has a similar complaint, but she, she wants to make a distinction here. She, uh, she attributes the, the prevalence of poetry voice or poet voice, as she calls it, um, as everyone calls it except fucking me. She attributes its prevalence to uh, the... Um, the uh, over-representation of straight white men in academia and in 
uh, the creative writing world and uh, to the desire of uh, those who are not straight white men to um, to appeal to the conventions established by you know those who've, who've controlled the the medium and the uh, venue for for so long so that that's sort of that's her working theory um, and then I'll pick up here with with her uh, questionnaire to young poets so or not sorry not just young poets as she makes clear uh, so what makes the poet voice such a problem? Why can't people simply speak the way they want? The issue with demanding the end of poet voice is clearly problematic and hypocritical. How can we anti-poet voice warriors tell the people that it is poet voice, the very tool by which we build our arsenal of immortality, making poetry dull? How can we ask you not to use it when we're so against those telling you to use it? The difference is that we are asking you to question your reasoning. I do not agree with Rich Smith, author of Stop Using Poet Voice, that it might be too late for some to change. This is something uh, Smith says late in his uh, article. He says, for the Gen Xers and the boomers, uh, it's too late. Forget about it. Don't worry about it. So this is back to uh, Lisa, Lisa Marie Bazile. I've had active discussions with poets who recognize the issue and who actively try to undo what I think this is meant to say what uh, has come to feel natural. I mean, there's a couple of typos in the line, but I believe that's what's intended. And then here are the questions she, she offers. Um, we might ask poets to ask themselves, one, why do I speak like my professors, peers, or other acclaimed poets? Two, am I aware that I am speaking with this lilt? Three, what does poet voice offer me? Four, what will happen when I abandon it? Five, do I think my lineation really sounds like this? Six, have I recorded myself reading with and without poet voice? Can I hear the difference? Seven, most importantly, have I tried to read the poem simply as myself with no preset ideas of performance? Eight, will I become my own performance style? Uh, I, I have trouble with that last question, just the grammatical or metaphysical implications. Will I become my own performance style? Will I uh, advance my own performance style? Will I create my own performance style? But what, you know, what, what seems clear um, in, in her, her argument is um, uh, uncertain as its articulation is at times, what seems clear is that she's aiming for, uh, she, she is aiming to promote this idea that um, a, new, a new standard a new convention whereby poets simply speak with authenticity out of their identity directly in a natural conversational way. She refers several times throughout her article to um, natural conversation and how this is so distant from po poet voice. Um, so she, she's in favor of uh, a natural, authentic, identity-oriented uh, style or mode. Um, speak your truth, your experience. Um, here, I'll, I'll read her conclusion. While poet voice is incredibly common, even fiction readers read this way, and that's pretty true. Sorry for my intrusion. Back to Buzzile. There are various styles within the poetry community where performance is concerned. Uh, all of these are inherently problematic. Reading styles strip the poet of their natural identity and of the poem's power. Why would you limit your own work in such a way? 
Expect more from yourself and from poetry. Go to readings and hear new poets. Take note of your emotions when reading poetry. Be open. Read your work alone in your bedroom until your voice is no longer contrived. Get drunk and do it again. Don't listen to what everyone tells you. Don't accept everything the lit journals tell you. Read about musico-poetics at Sound Literary Magazine. Decide for yourself. Hear the inherent not forced music in poetry. Give yourself the option. So uh, I, I won't I won't tackle um, everything in this uh, uh, couple of paragraphs, but um, but again she she um, she doubles down, specifying it's not just that I want you to pick your own style. I want you to have no style. I want you to uh, to speak from your most natural, impulsive, intimate you know, identity with no artifice at all. Um, you know, there are a, a, a number of different criticisms one could uh, offer of that advice, but, you know, the, the simplest, most straightforward I have coming again from a theater background is that that is a style. Pure, gritty, you know, uh, um, effortless, uh, first thought based impulsive presentation is a style in theater it's called kitchen sink realism you know and uh, in acting specifically it's known as the method method acting Stanislavski's method though there's a lot of uh, so there's a, a complicated history there and Stanislavski gets saddled with some um, some claims that that aren't aren't really his they they belong more accurately to Lee Strasberg different fucking podcast all right so uh, we got we got Basile's uh criticism we got Smith's criticism um in 2018 so a year after Basile um published her piece in the Huffington Post uh Merritt J MacArthur George Zellu and Lee M Miller published an unbelievably thorough 72 page scholarly article called Beyond Poet Voice, sampling the non-performance styles of a hundred American poets. I won't even pretend that I have read this whole piece. I've, <laughs> it's way too long. It's way too technical. I'm way too dumb. Uh, as I said, I was a theater major, a drama major. But uh, in it, they, um, they sample a hundred different poets. They cross-index these poets and all of their reading samples, of which there are multiple, by every demographic factor conceivable, sex, race, age, sexuality, um, uh, you know, ethnic, national, linguistic orientation. I mean, it's just, they, they do, it's incredibly thorough, just knuckle-cracking, impressive academic work, scholarly work of exactly the type and intensity and uh, uh, rigor uh, that, that is why I didn't get a PhD because I never could have fucking hacked it. So I tip my hat to them. They they uh, then they broke down these reading samples apart from the demographic uh, pie charts that they, they um, offer. They also broke down all of the reading samples according to what they call 12 prosodic measures. So here are the 12 different measures that they they use to uh, assess each of these different hundred, sorry, each of the different reading samples from the hundred poets. All right, so the first is speaking rate, right? Calculated as words per minute. Um, the second is 
average pause length. Um, the let's make sure my computer's not gonna shit out on me. Okay, the third is uh, sorry the, the is average length for pauses of at least 100, 250, and 500 milliseconds normalized for reading length. The third is average pause rate per second uh, for the same uh, duration. The fourth is rhythmic complexity of pauses. Uh, the fifth is rhythmic complexity of syllables. The sixth is rhythmic complexity of phrases. The seventh is average pitch. The eighth is pitch range in octaves. The ninth is pitch speed. Uh, the tenth is pitch acceleration. The eleventh is pitch entropy. The twelfth is dynamism. Um, that's it. That's twelfth. Uh, but just, I mean, I am amazed that they spent this much time trying to break down in the crispest, most quantitative terms imaginable exactly what poet voice is and uh they seem to have got i mean everything i have read in this insanely long article has been pretty convincing um i'm going to cheat and let uh, uh two other people um draw conclusions from it for me um uh, and then I want to talk about those. But um, so this is uh, Howard Ramsby II on his blog Cultural Front um, uh, remarked on something that the, the, the study itself had already uh, noted, but he made a kind of a, a salient observation about this, which is the, the, um, the breakdown of race in this study. Um, so it, 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 is, it picks up on uh, Lisa Marie Basile's criticism. <clears throat> All right. He says, where I was really drawn in and excited about this project concerned the specific analyses of women and African-American poets, and especially black, black women poets. MacArthur, Zellu, and Miller found that the 50 women poets in their sample exhibit a wider pitch range. He's, he is quoting uh, the um, uh, MacArthur study a wider pitch range, faster pitch speed, slightly faster pitch acceleration, and greater dynamism overall. Furthermore, among the women, they discovered useful findings concerning black women poets. So he's skipping, skipping down a little bit in his blog post. Um, it's worth noting that Smith, Trethaway, and Alexander, sorry, uh, so he's, um, uh, sorry, I mean, I'll, I'll go back a little bit. Um, uh, the scholars observed that five of the 10 sampled recordings of female poets with the lowest values for dynamism are also African-American. So it's not just the highest values for dynamism, but the lowest values for dynamism, which is another way of saying the five of the poets who best exemplified poet voice were also African-American. Um, but yes, or five of the female poets who best exemplified poetry voice were also African-American. Uh, they are Tracy K. Smith, Natasha Trethewey, Audre Lorde, Toy Der Derricote, uh, again, my uh, pronunciation is not good. Toy Derricote, Toy Derricote, Claudia Rankin, and Elizabeth Alexander. What does it mean that black women poets comprise the highest and lowest levels of dynamism in a sample of 50 American women poets and 100 American poets? It's worth noting that Smith, Trethaway, and Alexander are also are among our most decorated African American poets. So this is really, I think, Ramsby's key insight. Uh, Rankin's book, Citizen, is perhaps the best-selling poetry book over the last several decades. All of that is to say that certain kinds of literary prominence uh, do not, I think there's a typo here, do not correlate to reading 
do not correlate to reading performance dynamism. Do not correlate to reading performance dynamism. Sorry, I'll rephrase that. He, he has a little typo, but it, basically he's saying uh, that the it is not an accident, perhaps, that some of the most successful, really remarkably successful, remarkably prominent um, poets, uh, he says that it, it's not a coincidence that some of the black female poets who are most successful are also among the most perfectly poet voice exemplifying. Uh, he, he then says it even more clearly uh, uh, and more specifically. Or perhaps, and the work by MacArthur, Zellu, and Miller leads me to this idea, low expressiveness in poetry readings is one of the requirements of being a major award-winning black woman poet. So he, he's getting back to this idea that Bazile um, advances, but he, I think he, he hits it a little bit more precisely, which is to say that uh, if you are somebody who is you know sort of far away from the the um, the the artificial norm of the straight white male poet then it it's even more important for you to uh, hew ever closer to this weirdly artificial and normative uh, reading style so that's that's his that's his um, um, observation uh, I will then um, also rely on MacArthur, uh, Merritt MacArthur, one of the um, original, re the, the lead original researcher. Um, I'm just going to read the abstract of the uh, the um, essay. She's a I think 26 page essay, so she's had even more. So this is almost 100 pages that she's published on this of, of like crunchy, dense academic writing. Um, I'm just going to read the abstract of the paper she published two years later, in which she she backs off a little bit from. Uh, the suggestion, or at least she clarifies um, uh, the suggestion that the, this particular reading style might originate with a straight white men. It may have a slightly more mixed um, origin. So I'm just going to read her abstract for her 2020 book, or 2020 uh, essay on the subject, and then I will move the fuck on. Uh, all right. So this is from her um, her uh, article entitled "Monotony: The Churches of Poetry Reading and Sound Studies." Engaging with and amending the terms of debates about poetry performance, I locate the origins of the default neutral style of contemporary academic poetry readings in secular performance and religious ritual, exploring the influence of the beat poets, the black uh, arts poets, black arts movement, and the African-American church. Lines, line graphs of intonation patterns demonstrate what I call monotonous incantation. Here she's giving the, um, the uh, nerdiest and most precise definition of poetry voice. You could ask for line graphs of intonation patterns demonstrate what I call a monotonous incantation, a version of the neutral style that is characterized by three qualities. One, the repetition of a falling cadence within a narrow range of pitch. Two, a flattened affect that suppresses idiosyncratic expression of subject matter in favor of a restrained, earnest tone. And three, the subordination of convention of conventional intonation patterns dictated by syntax and of the poetic effects of line lengths and line breaks to the prevailing cadence and slow, steady pace. This style is popularly known as poet voice. That's uh, her, I'll, I'll break off there. Uh, so um, I think there's so much uh, a worthwhile observation in all of these different articles and essays and complaints and so forth. Uh, I think they also all just absolutely missed the fucking point. Um, the one that comes closest to getting it by my lights, uh, is, is Rich Smith, um, the very first of them in 2014 in City Arts. 
uh, he just I'll just read a little a little brief excerpt from the end of his his um or not the end near the end of his his uh, rant. Here's here's Smith. Sometimes poet voice is an effective and affecting style. Quoting William Morris, W. B. Yeats once said before a reading, "I am going to read my poems with a great emphasis on their rhythm." That may seem strange if you are not used to it. It gave me a devil of a lot of trouble to get into verse, the poems I'm going to read, and that is why I will not read them as if they were prose. Then he proceeded to read his famous poem, The Lake Isle of Innisfree, in a poet voice to end all poet voices. He's basically singing it. It sounds amazing, and not only because he's got a great tenor, but because his employment of poet voice matches up with the style and content of the poem, they make sense together. So he gets really fucking close, and then I think whiffs it. Some of this came to mind. Not because I've been to any kind of poetry reading anytime recently, as I, as I said before, and I imagine that's true for most of y'all, apart from the fucking inescapable Zoom readings. But because uh, a particular poetry reading uh, gained so much attention in the national press recently. I'm speaking, of course, of Amanda Gorman's uh, poem at the recent presidential inauguration. Uh, I want to nail down something <laughs> real, real quick. Amanda Gorman is an incredibly talented 21-year-old poet, uh, performer, and uh, I am not going to talk shit about her. Um, not that there's shit to talk. The distinction that I, I think sometimes comes up among uh, hoity-toity poetry circles when it comes to, to her work, or has come up among my friends at least, uh, is is the same distinction that you get if you print out the lyrics to a decent pop song and read them on the page, which is to say if you print out the lyrics to her poem and you read them on the page to yourself, uh, the, the effect is, is fairly flat. There's not a great deal to learn there. But, um, you know, you read Sondheim on writing song lyrics and you'll see that, that often flatness or emptiness or simplicity is exactly what you need to give a strong voice room to soar. So uh, I don't find the text of her poem useful or, or educational or inspiring, but it's a fucking great performance. Um, and uh, you know, her own articulated ambition is to become a politician. And I think she uh, has a very good chance of, of uh, hitting that out of the park. I, I should also say um, in the, the very small and very nerdy uh, corner of the poetry world that I hail from, there was a, a campaign or a, 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 you know, the beginning of a campaign to uh, promote Rena Espaya, a national treasure, um, to uh, to give the inaugural poem. Um, and uh, that didn't work out, but uh, I don't mean to suggest that it wouldn't have been uh, absolutely terrific in a very different kind of poem. But my point is, um, uh, Amanda Gorman's uh, performance of her poem uh, certainly read as authentic, or at least as authentic as the most talented politician's very you know best presented stump speech. I think you know it reminded me not uh, a little bit of um, uh, some of Obama's most you know uh, charismatic presentations. Um, I think it was basically a very good political stump speech. <laughs> oh, shitload better than anything. Joe Biden has ever uh, uh, said in public. <clears throat> I voted for him. I'll get into politics a little bit. I don't want to get into it too much. So it's not what I'm fucking interested in here. But um, I think uh, her highly 
artificial, highly stylized, but also genuine and totally convincing performance reminded me that Lisa Marie Basile is totally, absolutely, 100% wrong about authenticity, which is to say that authenticity doesn't always have anything to do with naturalness. I'm reminded of uh, the anecdote I heard about Anthony Hecht, uh, who was asked at a poetry reading late in life, maybe apocryphally, but I choose to believe it, uh, why he, a man born in New Jersey, uh, spoke with a British accent. And uh, his response immediately, without hesitation, was sheer affectation, which I think is perfect, and which, if you've read and loved his poems, as I have, uh, is unquestionably authentic, makes perfect sense, and rings absolutely true. What I think all of these people missed, um, except Amanda Gorman, because she's not offering a take on this stuff, um, or Anthony Hack, for that matter, though I never got to see him read or hear him read, unfortunately. What all of them missed is that the key thing to put to, all right, let, let me just back up for a second. Let's imagine for a moment that I had gotten my way. Let's imagine that I had actually managed to purge the world of poetry voice. I reminded of, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up in Atlanta and my dad who uh, also grew up in Atlanta and then went to school way up north and just got mocked mercilessly for his uh, redneck accent, um, though uh, that's not accurate in a number of ways. Um, but he has, a, you know, a, a discernible southern accent and he was called a hick and a redneck and a racist and a... Uh, um, hillbilly and you know and ignorant everything you could imagine uh somebody in uh, cambridge might call a uh redheaded georgia boy um he when my siblings and i were young was merciless about trying to eliminate any trace of a southern accent from our speech in particular i remember him uh, uh railing against the use of the informal contraction y'all which is a you know, classic Southernism um, in which I scrupulously extracted and eliminated from my speech. So let's imagine that as my dad tried to, uh, you know, we could purge poetry voice, take all of the criteria that MacArthur and her colleagues work up and just cut it out of the poetry scene so that nobody spoke in poetry voice anymore. In fact, let's say that everybody took uh, Lisa Marie Basile's advice and adopted a, a, a explicitly authentic natural style. Um, well, the very obvious result of this process would be the emergence of a new poetry voice. It would have a, it would sound different than the old poetry voice, but it would be exactly the fucking same in the sense that it would be instantly recognizable as a, a phony baloney uh, style adopted not for the sake of any effect it might have, but because it is the thing that one does, because it is the way that one reads. And in fact, a, you know, a, what, what Richard Smith or Rich Smith longs for is exactly the kind of uh, uh, high artificial style that, that, you know, has dominated public performance at many different periods in history. You know, uh, the, high Victorian artifice eventually gives way to Chekhovian realism. And that, you know, 
finds its peak and uh, you know, marble-mouthed, gritty naturalism of you know, Marlon Brando and James Dean, and uh, and you know some of that gets uh, uh, displaced by uh, unnerving, uh, n- you know, new artifice of absurdism, and so on and so on and so on. Um, and the key here is not, I think, that any one style is bad, nor nor is the key that uh, you know the you have to speak from the heart, you have to. Uh, uh, you know, be your true self. You know, as as Michael Palmer um, said in an interview I read a hundred years ago, first thought, best thought, is is absolutely. I'm gonna I'm I'm paraphrasing. Uh, he, he he's he's responding to the suggestion that first thought, best thought, which is a, a maxim I think often attributed to Allen Ginsberg or one of the beats. Um, he's he's responding to the suggestion that this is good advice and and his his observations that, f- that your first thought is usually a cliche, which is absolutely right. So no, I don't think that we should all adopt, uh, a, you know, a, what might be some essential native natural mode. I think that the point all of these people miss that the goal is to have some fucking effect on the audience. The goal is to make somebody laugh or cry or be entertained, or listen or be inspired. And that's something, you know, Amanda Gorman, I think, uh, understands intuitively. Well, maybe not, maybe not intuitively, but she understands very fucking well in any event. And that's what I guess I would hope for from poetry readings um, I might attend in the future is not that people do or don't speak with one or another style of speech, but that they aim not to demonstrate their uh, correctness or their authenticity, but rather that they try to do something to the audience, make the audience feel something. And, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, a Russell Edson poem or a Harriet Mullen poem or uh, an Allen Ginsberg poem or a Tom Gunn poem, or any of the styles that one might imagine would attend those poems. I don't care. I would just like for it to be aimed at the audience in some way, to be aimed at uh, the reader. All right, I ranted for quite a fucking time. I'm going to break off here. We're going to take a a brief musical interlude, and then I'm going to come back and read you a poem that I think is really fucking good. So I lied. Uh, I have one more brief note I want to um, make about poetry voice before moving on. Um, and, and this has to do with that word y'all that I mentioned earlier. <coughs> uh, eventually, I, I, I sort of allowed it back into my own vocabulary um, after having spent a little time outside the South, but recently become a little uh, unsettled by the way I've heard it used. Not that I haven't heard it used plenty throughout my life, but recently I've, I've begun to hear it used in a way that I never heard it before, which is to say, uh, I've heard it used as a signifier of coolness. Yeah, I've, st- 
I've started hearing it used by urban white kids from the north whose families never spent any time in the south. And you know what that tells me is that it is uh, become you know almost um, you know obviously because of uh, the the widespread popularity of rap music, it's become uh, a marker of with itness, of knowingness. And so, uh, you know, I mentioned before the possibility that a, a new poetry voice might emerge. And if the old poetry voice was uh, marked by sort of a coldness, a, a lack of emotion, a, a stilted, over-enunciated, um, starchy white maleness, um, then, you know, I, I suspect that the new poetry voice might, um, might swing in a different direction, you know, again, with, uh, with equal artifice and equal, with an equal attempt to signify some association with a, a, a desirable, uh, cohort, a desirable group. So I bring this up only to say really that rather than try to explain or, or go into any of this myself, I really just want to recommend uh, a fucking brilliant podcast that I, I can claim association with it only insofar as my podcast also has a silly name and also uses cheesy uh, faux trap music as, a, as a, its theme. Uh, but this is Champagne Sharks um, and specifically... If you want like a just cutting diamond <laughs> sharp uh, uh, el el examination of white culture's attempt to co-opt blackness, um, then listen to, you know, to begin with at least, listen to the very first and the very third episode of Champagne Sharks. It's Trevor Bullio whose name, as I do with everyone's name, I'm probably mispronouncing, but uh, on the show, he goes by T. The show, again, is Champagne Sharks. And his uh, basically impromptu monologue, or what seems to be an impromptu monologue, in the first and then in the, th in the third episode especially, um, they're just absolutely brilliant and uh, will um, will fill you in on a lot. <laughs> they filled me in on a lot. Um, and in particular the embarrassingly obvious in retrospect, but just uh, almost brutally inarguable reasons that Hamilton is <laughs> um, is a, uh, a travesty, catchy as it may uh, be at times. So again, that's Champagne Sharks and Trevor Bullio, uh, uh, much smarter and much more worthwhile than anything I have to say. Uh, I just want to send you there um, and say, uh, you know, if my one contribution is that I suspect that if and when the new poetry voice emerges, if it hasn't already, uh, it may have something to do with the word y'all, which I now feel self-conscious about using again <laughs> because, because it's now a cool word and I am not, nor have I ever been cool. On that note, uh, I want to read a poem that I, I, I have been saving up that I, I am jealous of. I'm jealous of both as a poet and as a reader. I wish I could have written it, and I guard it jealously because uh, it's very underappreciated. 
Um, I had to dig in order to find it on my own. Um, uh, but I'm going to share it with you because it's just too fucking good not to. So this is um, Nothing Endures. It's a very short poem, so I'm probably going to read it twice. It originally appeared in uh, Harper's Magazine in 1928, I believe. And then it was, uh, um, and then it came out again in the, the collection, uh, The Black Christ uh, in 1929 um, by uh, County Cullen. So this is Nothing Endures by County Cullen. Nothing endures, not even love. Though the warm heart purrs of the length thereof. Though beauty wax, yet shall it wane. Time lays a tax on the subtlest brain. Let the blood riot, give it its will. It shall grow quiet, it shall grow still. Nirvana gapes for all things given. Nothing escapes. Love not even. Oh, God, I just, I love that poem. So, uh, I mean, it's, obviously, it's just technically impressive. Uh, it's, you know, written in uh, Demeter Quatrain's rhymed ABAB, which is, unbelievably hard to do and, and and just even harder to do in a way that that sounds like remotely like human speech uh and this is for being uh, extremely artful it's also a, a fairly natural sounding um poem you know it's not you know it is it's not written in prosy free verse but neither is it written in uh sort of an especially ostentatiously high register. Nothing endures, not even love. Uh, though the warm heart purrs of the length thereof. And even there, we, we know he brings in the length thereof. It's used almost in a kind of a winking, mocking way. Right? He, like, he's, he's sort of making fun of the sentimentality uh, uh, of one who might um, who might suspect or might hope or might insist that love does endure um it's uh you know i think about the um there's a real economy i mean not just in syllables and, and, and feet obviously but there's an economy in language and image that you know the first eight lines present a pretty you know uh rich density of uh analogies and then by the time he gets to the the seventh and eighth line, he 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 seems to pull back a little bit. So that the second half of the poem says um, denotes far less than the first half. But it's partly because I think we've kind of gotten the point. And if he were to if he were to go on hammering his argument of, uh, of you know, hopelessness with equal uh, specificity and equal invention from line to line to line, I think it would get monotonous and it would get even maybe inadvertently comical. And so, uh, you know, the, the ninth and the 10th lines, I'm sorry, the, um, 10th, the 11th and the 12th lines, it shall grow quiet. It shall grow still say, say almost nothing at all. I mean, they, they fulfill the meter and the rhyme, but they're really just reiterating 
this terrible argument that it takes us a while to swallow. He knows that we don't need any more argument to swallow. He's just allowing us to get it down our throats. And then the last stanza says almost nothing. And if so if this poem has a flaw, um, I, I would say that it probably lies in the word nirvana. And I think it's it's maybe a twofold thing, you know. For one, it's it's the it's the the, the one um, image or word or moment in this poem that feels a little bit uh, I hesitate to word, use the word exotic, but uh, you know of a different world maybe than than the rest. Um, nirvana, of course, uh, is the word for um, the the state that. Uh, the state of enlightenment, which is also a state of extinction, of blowing out, as in the blowing out of a candle, that um, Buddhists aspire to. And I think that uh, certainly in 1928, um, and even you know, even as recently, like when my dad was learning about nirvana and, and trying to explain this to me when I was a kid, uh, this was sort of understood in, I mean, probably partly in exoticizing uh, you know, sort of an ogling Western vision of the weird East. Uh, it was understood as sort of a, wow, that's wild. Their heaven is a, is a nothing, is a void. Um, but it was, it was uh, the point of Nirvana when it was, when we brought it up as a word, the thing it signified, the thing we bothered to bring it up for, I think probably in 1928, was for this emptiness, this void, this nothingness. Today, I think, of course, obviously, you know, in, in the West and, you know, the America, in America especially, we we cannot help but think of, you know, one of the biggest rock bands of all time. <laughs> but also, I think there's just a, a slightly more um, nuanced uh, uh, understanding of Buddhism as a, a philosophy and a tradition, um, so that nirvana is not so much just a, an oddity to gawk at, um, but is is part of a, a complex you know, fabric. So I think I think that's maybe one of the reasons that that, that word maybe stands out a little bit, at least when I read the poem. Um, but I, I understand it, especially given the, the, the insistent argument of the poem. I understand it as being mostly, you know, not really having much to do with Buddhism proper, but being uh, a, a synonym for the abyss, the void, the emptiness. Um, and then, uh, in a way that's that's it's interesting because that first that, so that first um, stanza ends with the, the phrase "the length thereof," which is a which is again it's a phrase from a more uh, self consciously formal way of speaking than much of the other much of the rest of the poem might suggest, uh, and is and is used I think deliberately as a, a, as, a as I said um, in order to kind of to mock the sentimentality of the warm heart. The inversion that the poem ends on, which is, you know, a partial inversion of that second line, nothing endures, not even love, and then the end is nothing escapes love, not even. To me, I, it, I can't quite account for it, but I just find that that last line shattering, and it's um, partly maybe it's it's a kind of a callback to that, the 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 um, the, the wish for that higher register, that higher uh, um, mode of romance or of at least a grammar of syntax that would allow for uh, the insistence of, a, uh, of something like, um, say, uh, Shakespeare's 116, 
Let me not to the marriage of true, true minds, infinite impediments. Love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove, and so on. Uh, you know, that kind of argument is, is just not in any place available, but uh, in this in the world of this poem, in the world of Cullen's poem. But the last line, the inversion suggests a, kind of a longing for it. And yet, love not even, that's not even, you know, the length thereof is a, is a familiar, you know, sort of uh, stuffy, formal construction. Love not even, that, that's not a, nobody has ever said that. It's almost like not only is the language reaching for something that is no longer available, it's almost as if the connected tissue of the language is dissolving on the spot. The thing that comes most to mind, and um, and I feel kind of like an asshole because uh, I, I love Colin so much, <laughs> but what comes to mind is uh, uh, the Billy Collins' poem, Paradell for Susan, um, which uh, has been much mocked, uh, and, and maybe rightly so, um, but it's, you know, fam famously Billy Collins, I think it's in Picnic Lightning. I don't, I, if I were a better podcaster, I would have brought the fucking book out and then had it ready to hand. But he, he makes up a, a fake uh, um, form, a fake poetic form in which the, the, the demands of the diction in the form, it's sort of like a, you know, a, an evil genius's Sistina, in which all of the words of the poem have to be recycled in a certain order, in a certain way, such that basically his, as he tries to complete this non-existent, the paradel, as he calls it, um, it, the, the language just absolutely falls apart. And so the last line of the poem is incoherent. It's just a string of words. And I think it ends on a a preposition or something like this. Um, no, it ends. I don't. You don't know if it even ends on. It may end on an article. You know, not not even so coherent as a preposition. Um, so this has a little bit of that. Uh, maybe, maybe it is the pathos that I find in Collins' poem that informs my perhaps naive response to Billy Collins' poem, which I like despite, for the most part, not finding his poetry very uh, interesting. Um, so. Uh, in order to wash any Billy Collins or any of my own rambling out of your mouth, uh, uh, in order to wash the taste of that out of your mouth, I'm just going to read Collins' poem one more time, and then I'm going to sign the fuck off. All right, so this is Nothing Endures by County Cullen. Nothing endures. Not even love. Though the warm heart purrs of the length thereof. Though beauty wax, yet shall it wane. Time lays a tax on the subtlest brain. Let the blood riot. Give it its will. It shall grow quiet. It shall grow still. Nirvana gapes for all things given. Nothing escapes. Love not even. All right. Well, that is uh, our show. Uh, Sleeve Ricketts is produced in North Carolina. Uh, music comes courtesy of Eternal Producer. Uh, please do write me with uh, you know, suggestions, comments, complaints, ideas, uh, um, guests, if, you, if there are guests that you'd like to, to hear. 
uh, on here, then uh, let me know. Um, you can either write to sleericketts at gmail.com. That's S-L-E-E-R-I-C-K-E-T-S at gmail.com. Or you can uh, write to matthewbuckleysmith.com. There's a comment page at the end. Um, so please do let me know. Uh, also, if you're listening to this on, you know, presumably Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, one of those places, uh, uh, rate the podcast, review the podcast, subscribe. Uh, all of those are um, greatly appreciated. Only if you like it. If you hate it, then then maybe just be quiet about it. Um, uh, you can't reach me on Twitter, but if you uh, want to write about the podcast anywhere, uh, on any of the social media, then you are more than welcome to. And I take back every bad thing I have ever said about uh, any of those places. So thanks so much. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>